Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm, as always, Moya Lothian-McLean, but tonight I'm joined by a very special guest. We've got Navara Media's Labour Movement correspondent, Polly Smythe, making her inaugural appearance. Hello. Hello, Moya. <laughs> I'm very excited to go through the stories with you today, and we have got a lot of them. Coming up later tonight, updates from Gaza on the eve of the International Court of Justice ruling. We've also got Labour leader Keir Starmer refusing to say if a spade is a spade and call a war crime a war crime. And the COVID inquiry goes to Scotland to look at how the pandemic response took place there. First story, Britain's declining steel industry is facing another major blow. At its high point, Britain's steel trade employed around a quarter of a million people, but now the industry only employs about 39,000 workers, and that number is set to shrink further. Britain's biggest steel employer has announced plans to cut nearly 3,000 jobs at its main steelworks in Port Talbot, Wales. Tata Steel is a private company based in India, and last week they confirmed plans to close two blast furnaces at the South Wales site. Instead, Tata say they will be constructing a new electric arc furnace. Because of this, 2,800 jobs are to be directly scrapped at Port Talbot, with a further 300 being cut at another South Wales location. Unsurprisingly, unions have called the move, quote, absolutely devastating. Now, there is a lot to unpack in this story. And first is the question, why are Tata Steel cutting these jobs? The company's public explanation is that the move is part of a green transition. But in reality, these job losses have been threatened for seven years. In 2016, Tata Steel announced the sell-off of their entire British arm of their business after operating at a loss of £1 million a day. Back then, cheap Chinese steel imports were seen as the main threat to Britain's steel industry. However, a deal was struck that saved the Port Talbot Works and 8,000 UK jobs after trade union leaders and local MPs intervened. As part of that deal, pension packages were overhauled, and in exchange, Tata promised that they would keep the Port Talbot steelworks open for at least five years. At the time, David Cameron's government notably was criticised for its lack of action to help the steel industry and preserve jobs. In the last eight years, little has been done by the successive Tory governments to prevent reaching such a crisis point again, despite it obviously being on the horizon. And last year, Tata Steel again threatened to close the Port Talbot site. In response, the UK government handed Tata Steel £500 million to secure the future of the steelworks. But with that deal came the acceptance of job losses. At the time, Labour's shadow business secretary, Jonathan Reynolds, said the Tories were, quote, spending £500 million of taxpayers' money to make thousands of British workers redundant. But where the UK government has sort of shrugged, trade unions and the Welsh government have been active in trying to avoid the threat of job losses that now seem imminent. Polly, this is your beat. Now, let's take take us through it. Before Tata announced these job losses, they'd been negotiating with trade unions, right? There were two different proposals on the table. What were they? So in November, the Steelworkers Unions, Unite, GMB and Community were told about Tata Steel's plans to close both blast furnaces. Initially, the three unions came together to make an alternative proposal, but eventually Unite walked away from that and they produced their own report called A Worker's Plan for Steel. Now, both proposals are fairly technical and I'm not a steel expert, 
But what they boil down to essentially is that the GMB and community plan accepts some job cuts. Um, so they accept the, they, the closure of the oldest blast furnace and they want to keep the younger blast furnace open and active till 2032. Now, Unite's plan doesn't accept any job cuts and actually pushes for increased capacity with steel. So they say no redundancies um, and the plan puts forward a way to expand steel making capacity and job creation. And they do that through a number of mechanisms, whether that's pushing for um, a public procurement scheme that means that any UK public contract has to use 100% British steel. Um, they want government investment of £12 billion in steel over 12 years. Um, but they also broaden it out and they say, if we're talking about you know, capacity to make steel, we also have to talk about electricity. Um, and so they propose electricity price gaps, um, public ownership of the grid, so that UK steelmakers don't spend so much money. Um, you're simply paying the energy costs it takes to produce steel. So Polly, Tata rejected both those proposals, saying they weren't feasible. What has been the trade union response? Given the fact that there are two proposals, um, you know, it's clear that there's not a completely united response uh, as there was at the start. And in fact, there's been quite a rift between uh, the three unions with the GMB and community uh, accusing Unite of being unrealistic. Uh, Unite, you know, responded to that by saying that its record spoke for itself. Um, so while there is a rift going on um, in terms of the proposals that were put forward, you know, obviously neither of those proposals um, were accepted by Tata. There are really important things that the unions are united on. Uh, you know, one, the unions are united in their outrage at the situation. You know, they're outraged at um, facing a mismanaged transition with no industrial strategy. Uh, you know, they're united in the fact that although Tata claims this decision is coming about because they're greening their business, uh, that the company cares, you know, about the money. Um, Gary Keogh, who's the vice chair of the Port Talbot's multi-union, said, Tata wants to make their steel in India, bring it thousands of miles across the ocean on ships with diesel engines and call it green. It's time people were honest. Um, you know, unions have also pointed to the fact that uh, Tata are building two brand new blast furnaces in India currently. Um, the project's set to finish quite soon in eastern India, um, whilst claiming that, you know, they need to green Wales by closing these two, these two blast furnaces. Um, you know, and unions are united in the fact that this closure isn't simply just about steelworkers. It's about the industries around steelworkers in, um, in Port Talbot. It's about the pubs where people drink. It's about the corner shops where people buy sandwiches. It's about the contractors and, and the suppliers who support the, you know, the, the the life world um, that Steelworks creates in Port Talbot. Um, you know, and also even going further than that, there will be unionized workers, uh, other steelworks across the country, you know, in Teesside perhaps, who are looking keenly to what's happening um, in Port Talbot and wondering about what it means for them, you know, further down the line. Yeah, I think that's a really good point in that these closures are part of a longer process of deindustrialization. We've seen the impact that has on local communities. Is there a still a way that Britain's steel industry, particularly the Port Talbot site, could be revived? Is that making it green? Is it something that might happen under a different political party in charge of the entire UK? What's your take on this? I mean, that's a question not just for steel in this instance, is a question for all our carbon intensive industries 
oil, gas, automotive, on whose terms will we have a just transition? Will we have a transition that's just or unjust for workers? Um, you know, Port Talbot is a great test case um, for the difficulties that a just transition will bring. Uh, you know, Port Talbot, um, Tata Steel's response shows us just how easily, you know, green narratives can be co-opted. Um, but also it's not only Tata Steel who are, you know, co-opting this, um, you know, the idea of a just transition. You know, in the Telegraph, Alison Pearson was busy saying that these workers had been sacrificed on the altar um, of net zero, you know, which is really divisive and, and immediately turns this into not an issue about Britain's industrial capacity and our complete absence of a, of a strategy, but about, you know, culture war and wokery and, uh, you know, people in London's metropole sacrificing Welsh workers. Um, and I definitely don't think this is an, inevit an inevitability, you know, um, the fact we have no coherent industrial strategy by which to decarbonize shows us why companies like Tata Steel and, and oh, sorry, British Steel and Tata have so much power, you know, um, like Jonathan Reynolds said, we've essentially handed them over nearly a billion pounds to do what? you know, make people unemployed. Um, and so Labour have promised to do a couple of things in response to um, the Port Talbot announcement. Uh, they've promised to demand that Tata don't make any irreversible decisions before a general election. And they've also committed three billion um, to secure the future of the steel industry. It's not enough, you know, and that comes hot on the heels of last week's flip-flopping about where Labour were planning to possibly backtrack on the, um, you know, on spending 28 billion a year on green investment. This so clearly calls out for public ownership, the situation, something that Labour has repeatedly rejected. Um, and instead looking a bit like Biden, that they're going to rely on green finance to decarbonise, which basically means letting private shareholders drive forward our plans to go green, um, which seems to me basically expecting the same people who got us into the mess of climate change to suddenly miraculously get us out. And yeah, I do really worry about that uh, co-option of the net zero um, sort of agenda immediately because, you know, it's another classic thing of there's a gulf here, these workers are being abandoned and there's a narrative being pushed by the right where the reason you're being abandoned is because of net zero, because it would cost Tata too much as it to you know produce steel here in a green way. So they're taking it elsewhere to reduce the carbon emissions in line with British requirements. And that's just not what it's about at all. It's completely cost saving on a different level. This story isn't just one of neglected British industry, though. It also highlights Westminster's treatment of the devolved nations that make up Britain. Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford is one of the politicians fighting for the survival of the Port Talbot Steelworks. In First Minister's questions this week, Drakeford noted that the closure would be devastating, not just for Wales, but for the whole of the UK. Drakeford also said this. On Thursday of last week, when it became clear that the company were to make their announcement on the Friday, I wrote immediately to the Prime Minister, uh, asking for uh, a telephone call with him on Friday, so that we could jointly discuss how we could best respond to the uh, emerging picture. Uh, and by eight o'clock, half past eight in the morning on Friday, I'd had a reply from the Prime Minister saying that he couldn't find time to meet me uh, or talk to me that day. Uh, and I, I do think that is genuinely shocking. The Prime Minister of the UK saying he couldn't find time to dis discuss this issue is shocking. 
I would even say that it's criminally negligent because Rishi Sunak pledges to support British business, but he just means supporting wishy-washy investment speculators in the city, whereas opportunities in actual industry are staring him in the face and he can't even be bothered to pick up the phone to his counterpart, who is already very neglected. It is disgraceful. And it seems clear to me, if Tata Steel is allowed to progress with their job cuts, it will lead to that local community devastation we talked about. It will lead the, to the end of a key British industry for good and more dependence on importing materials from Europe and Asia, which also increases carbon emissions. Whereas if we invest in green British steel, even stop contracting the responsibility out to private companies and nationalise it again, it could be completely revitalised and a massive part of rebuilding green British industry. And as Polly covered, even Keir Starmer's Labour Party, which is all about business, sees that potential. At the end of last year, they made, inv they made investment in British steel a key part of their election pitch. The question is, will there still be something to save if Labour come to power? We're watching. Next story. As the world awaits the ruling of the International Court of Justice on Israel's war in Gaza, the situation for Palestinians in the region still remains dire. And even now, as Palestinians in Gaza attempt to reach vital aid, they face brutality from the Israeli military. Accusations have emerged of the IDF firing on a crowd of Palestinians queuing for aid in Gaza City. According to health officials, 20 people were killed and more than 150 injured. Al Jazeera reported the incident involved heavy and indiscriminate tank shelling and machine gun fire. The injured were taken to the Al-Shifa hospital, already under severe pressure after suffering shortages of medical staff and supplies. A spokesperson for the Gaza Civil Defence has told CNN this. There are hundreds of injuries. The types of injuries are unbelievable. Some people have lost their limbs. That official added that crews are still trying to reach the injured but are being blocked by Israeli forces. Abu Karif, a Palestinian at the scene, told CNN this. The Israeli military instructs people to go to these locations designated for aid pickup and then they target it. We're never going to find food to eat. We are resorting to food one would normally feed livestock. Those attacks today follow similar targeting of hungry civilians in Gaza City yesterday. In the Zaytun neighbourhood, people were forced to flee under gunfire while they waited for much-needed aid. Verified by Reuters, this video shows Palestinians scrambling for safety, with many carrying aid while running. There's a reason that people in the north of Gaza are prepared to risk their lives for food. The aid situation there is far worse than anywhere else in the territory. The World Food Programme has reported that very little aid is making it through to northern Gaza. Their spokesman, Abir Efeta, told Reuters that there is a, quote, systematic limitation on getting into the north of Gaza, not just for the whole, for the World Food Programme. Earlier this month, the UN also accused Israel of systematically denying it access to northern Gaza for the delivery of aid. Israel has also denied these claims in turn, instead choosing to release this video. Today... The 10,000 truck carrying humanitarian aid entered the Gaza Strip. Since the beginning of the war, Israel has increased its capacity to perform security checks on the trucks by adding security equipment, increasing walking hours and manpower, and opening an additional inspection site. Of the trucks sent, close to 99% were approved by Israel. To increase the amount of aid reaching the people of Gaza even more, several steps need to be taken, 
such as increasing manpower and walking hours at the organization distributing the aid, increasing the amount of trucks carrying the aid, and of course, increasing the amount of aid sent by the international community. There is no limit on the amount of food, water, medical supplies or shelter equipment that Israel is willing to facilitate. Because our war is with Hamas, not with the people of Gaza. Not the jaunty soundtrack. Our war is with Hamas, not with the people of Gaza. The more than 26,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza tell a very different story in their absence. But even if Israel is right about the 10,000 aid trucks having entered Gaza, that only amounts to around 90 per day over the course of this war. With 2.2 million Palestinians in the enclave, that means that one truck is expected to feed more than 25,000 Palestinians. The UN has pointed out that, quote, every single person in Gaza is hungry. And humanitarian agencies have repeatedly said that 500 trucks need to cross the border each day at a minimum to provide for the people there. Now, while starving civilians come under fire in northern Gaza, Israel appears to be busily carrying out a plan that the US told it not to. The Wall Street Journal reports that Israel is building a buffer zone along the Gaza border, despite warnings from the US not to reduce the territory of Palestine. The plan was revealed following the killing of 21 IDF soldiers earlier this week. They were mining buildings just 600 metres inside the border when a Hamas rocket appeared to trigger an explosion, demolishing the buildings with the soldiers inside. Announcing their deaths, IDF Chief of Staff Herzi Halivi said that the soldiers were killed, quote, in the buffer zone between the Israeli communities and Gaza. One problem... The US has reportedly warned against any such zone discussing Palestinian territorial sovereignty. Sovereignty. US State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said in December that, quote, if any proposed buffer zone was inside Gaza, that would be a violation of the print, that principle and something we oppose. Not the war crimes, they're not opposing the war crimes, just the principle. Still, a planned buffer zone certainly fits with the IDF activities in recent weeks. Those IDF soldiers were applauding the demolition of a school in northern Gaza in early December. It lay just a mile from the Israel-Gaza border. And last week, the IDF demolished these 11 residential buildings in Khan Yunus in the south of Gaza, just a few hundred metres from that border. And more footage shows another set of buildings in Khan Yunus, roughly a kilometre from the border, also being destroyed by IDF explosives. According to Israel's Channel 12 News, the IDF has already destroyed 1,100 buildings of the 2,800 needed for such a buffer zone. The IDF has not given any further details on this buffer zone, but a spokesperson did say this. This is part of the imperative actions that are needed in order to implement a defense plan that will provide improved security in southern Israel. The Washington Post has also reported this. Israel has informed the United States that the buffer zone being constructed inside Gaza is only a temporary security accommodation to eliminate Hamas's firing positions close to the border, according to a US official who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss diplomatic communications. 
The revelations come in the context of Benjamin Netanyahu declaring that Israel would maintain, quote, full security control over Gaza when the war ends. But the US doesn't seem to be taking that statement very seriously. Commenting on the proposed buffer zone, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken said this. If there needs to be transitional arrangements to enable that to happen, that's one thing. But when it comes to the permanent status of Gaza going forward, we remain clear about not encroaching on its territory. It's not just Blinken who appears to be blind to Israel's true intentions for Gaza. British Foreign Secretary David Cameron has been in Israel, where he called for another pause in the fighting and said this. It's time for an immediate pause in the fighting, because we've got to not only get the aid in, but crucially, we've got to get those hostages out. And what I think we can do now is plan for how you turn that pause into a permanent, sustainable ceasefire without a return to fighting. That's what I was pushing on him, and that's what I'll be talking about here today. Now, for that to happen, a lot of things would have to happen. You'd have to see uh, the Hamas leadership leave Gaza. You'd have to see the instruments of terrorism being dismantled in Gaza. But you've also got to see a political perspective so that Palestinian people can see that there is a route to having a Palestinian state, to having a new future. So it's all those things together that need to form part of a proper plan. Calling for a ceasefire but still parroting lines about the dismantling instruments of terrorism in Gaza Nearly half the buildings in Gaza have been damaged beyond repair. Half that territory is rubble, but sure, more dismantling is what's needed. And with Western leaders still farting out this weak rhetoric, all eyes are now turned to the International Court of Justice because the court will deliver its interim ruling on the genocide case brought against Israel by South Africa tomorrow at noon UK time. We'll, of course, be covering all the findings there. Let's go to our next story. Many of you will have seen this harrowing video from Gaza that was broadcast by ITV. It showed the moments in Khan Yunus when an innocent civilian was shot dead by IDF sniper fire. A group of men are carrying a white flag trying to rescue family members. Then a volley of shots rings out and one man, Ramzi Abu Sahul, is struck in the chest. Another man places the flag on his wound and they try to carry him to safety but the 51-year-old father and husband sadly dies. That video was shown to Labour leader Keir Starmer last night on ITV's Peston. And as a former human rights lawyer, you'd expect him to care about international humanitarian law. In theory, you couldn't find anyone better place to call a war crime a war crime. Let's take a look. You are a very experienced lawyer. Surely that was a war crime. Well, Robert, first I have to say I haven't seen the footage yet. I've been working around the clock, haven't stopped today uh, yet. I will, of course, see it. I've been sent the link to it, but I haven't seen it um, yet. Um, But what I would say is this. We've been absolutely clear throughout this that, yes, of course, Israel has the right to self-defence, but it's got to be in accordance with international law. And they're two sides of the same coin. It's why we've said... Uh, that the ICC should be in there with jurisdiction, with the prosecutor gathering evidence, because there's got to be accountability under international law. What I don't think is wise, and this is, you know, we're always being asked to do this, is for politicians to sit looking at clips on social media or on programmes and forming instant judgments about whether it's a breach of this law or that. That doesn't seem to be wise, but I don't recoil from the fact or don't resile from the fact 
that of course Israel has got to comply with international law. And of course, that means the accountability mechanisms need to be there, of which uh, the prosecutor is one, which is why we support that. Israel isn't even a member of the ICC and it prosecutes individuals. But also, what more evidence could you need before saying this might be a war crime? Because it's right there in the footage. Nobody's asking Starmer to judge definitively whether this is in fact a war crime. It would be enough just to say the video provides grounds for suspecting Israel of committing those crimes and calling for immediate ceasefire so an investigation can take place. The same way he was able to say, uh, I believe that Israel has the right to self-defense. Now, Starmer gave obviously quite a loyally and loyally answer there. Uh, due process, independent investigation. But it seems like there are some politically expedient cases where human rights high flyer Keir Starmer has been quite happy to give a very different response. With your lawyer's hat on, is Vladimir Putin a war criminal? Yes. Yes. What I've seen already amounts to war crimes, uh, particularly. Uh, the awful attacks on civilians. Um, and I think it's very important that he's held to account and is responsible. And all those that are acting with him know that they too will be held to account. And this is something which we need to make clear now um, so that those who are involved at the moment know what the consequences are. Russian aggression in Ukraine is undoubtedly a breach of international law. And I've already, for myself, seen images of war crimes being committed. So I'd also uh, like us all to say with one voice that anybody who is responsible for these war crimes, and they are war crimes in Ukraine, uh, will be hunted down and held to account before the International Criminal Court. Polly, I'm interested. Obviously, where we, the, the spaces we tend to exist, it feels like Starmer's fence sitting is doing a massive amount of damage. But I saw a really interesting uh, poll recently from More in Common, which said that people actually don't mind so much what that Labour aren't really doing anything and prefer them to have a united response with the government. Do you think that his fence sitting is going to hurt him? I don't think what we saw in that clip is anything new from Starmer. Um, I suppose it depends which constituencies you talk about when you say, you know, will they will they mind or they care? Um, you know, I, I think certainly if you have a shred of conscience it's impossible to watch that clip of him uh you know refusing to comment on whether or not the the video we played uh is a war crime i find it actually disturbing um the flippancy with which he's able to discuss these things uh, it's, it's completely in keeping with uh the conduct of him and you know other labor politicians throughout um you know since october um i find it inhumane that someone could talk about you know a genocide that has created so many orphans that it has necessitated the need for an entirely new acronym you know wc nsf wounded child no surviving family it's such a classic case of political maneuvering that starmer is asked to comment on whether or not what he's been shown was a war crime and he makes it a question of whether or not he should be called to judge on what he calls clips on social media, um, which I just think is, you know, such a sleight of hand. It shows us the completely flawed logic, um, you know, that we see time and time again in these discussions about international law, where Starmer invokes the International Criminal Court as a mechanism for accountability that allows the suspension of actual accountability in the here and now, so Starmer can get away with saying, well, I, I don't need to exercise any power to intervene and prevent these war crimes because down the line, 
we have mechanisms that will, you know, that should hold Israel accountable. And it's, we've seen that problematic logic again and again throughout, you know, since October. Yeah, I agree. Something that was actually also interesting in this study was, first of all, it found that support for a ceasefire was not the majority opinion in the UK, even though people express this great like sympathy with civilians. Uh, also found that people are mostly split on in Britain which which sides they uh, take in this in what they call a conflict. Um, but the fascinating thing was that people who are you know pro-Israel are much less likely to be active, whereas pro-Palestinian individuals are much more likely to have gone on a protest to really be active in trying to lobby for a ceasefire and also hold the cause closer to their heart, um, I think was the language they used in this study. Things to think about there. And of course, it's not just on this side of the pond that mealy-mouthed liberals can't call a war crime a war crime. In the US, ITV put its video to State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel. I wonder what your response to that is and whether you think from watching that video, whether that potentially represents a war crime? Um, I have seen the, the, that footage, um, but uh, I uh, am not going to uh, comment on the specifics around that, given I'm not aware of the full circumstances on the ground. Um, and as we've said before, this is not um, an American operation. But well, beyond but that, never, yeah, please don't. You're, you're I, I'm happy to take your questions if you'll allow me, uh, if you allow me to, to answer. I don't interrupt you and I ask you to not do the same. Um, as a general matter, though, we have not parsed our words about the moral and strategic imperative that the government of Israel and the Israeli security forces have to take every effort possible to minimize civilian casualties and minimize impact on civilians. As it relates to the footage that your organization ha has shared, again, I'm just going to refrain from commenting on specific operations as we do not have full circumstances of what on the ground from here. This isn't an American uh, operation. I'm not on the ground there to speak to the uh, full parameters of the situation. It's but not, again, it's not, it's not any a... civilian death, uh, any civilian death is is heartbreaking, and any uh, civilian life lost uh, is is one too many. And we have made that clear uh, with the Israelis, and we'll continue to do so. Beyond that comment about it being heartbreaking, which is a platitude we often hear, um, are you? would you urge, uh, given that you, you support, broadly support IDF operations in the Gaza Strip, would you support a Israeli investigation of what happened in that video? That given, is for given that they're waving a white flag and that, they represented no threat. That, that is for uh, the IDF to, to undertake and determine uh, based on the circumstances of that uh, situation. Thoughts and prayers from the State Department there, but the journalists in the room weren't having it. And the line of questioning that followed gave an interesting insight into how nervous the US is about holding Israel accountable for its actions. How about the footage that arose last week and the week before and the week before and the week before and the week before, where there have been, you know, if not similar, awfully close instances. Have you ever gotten a, an explanation from the Israelis? Have I'm, you ever gotten a finding from the Israelis of what their investigation, if they promised one? I, I'm not going to speak to uh, private diplomatic conversations, Matt, but this is something that uh, we raise continuously with the Israelis. Uh, 
the secretary has done so, other officials in uh, our government have done so, and will continue to uh, to do it. Okay, well, uh, have you ever gotten an answer from the Israeli? I'm just not going to. I'm not going to speak to the, the privacy of certain diplomatic conversations, Matt. But we have been clear that there is a moral and strategic imperative to take as many steps as well, possible that, to minimize civilian that, that's casualties. That's fine. That's fine that you say that. But then, when you are asked specific questions like this relating to specific footage. Uh, and this is not the first time that this has happened. You've been asked repeatedly about this, and then you always, you come back and say, "Well, we've raised questions with you. We've asked the Israelis questions. Have you ever gotten a response to any of those?" We these conversations. I'm not are, asking you for the details. I just want to. Know we have these conversations are private. Have. We have raised with the Israelis specific circumstances, and we have uh, you have received, gotten answers. Correct. I'm not going to speak to those uh, what, conversations what right say, now. In any case, are you aware of that the Israelis say mm, we screwed up here? I'm just not going to speak to the private conversations, Matt. Well, yeah. Since you, you know, it sounds like you haven't had a chance to ask about this one. Are you planning to ask about this particular instance or no? I'm just not going to speak to specific diplomatic conversations. Talk isn't cheap because while all this rhetoric flies, more lives are being lost. And I want us to remember that. Let's go on to our next story. The COVID-19 inquiry has moved its focus to Scotland. The proceedings have shifted to Edinburgh this week to examine how Scotland handled the pandemic. Today, First Minister Hamza Youssef was in the hot seat, but it's his predecessor who has been making headlines. Former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon surrendered her WhatsApps, or rather didn't, to the inquiry as evidence. And today, her former special advisor, aka a SPAD, as it will be mentioned in this evidence, Liz Lloyd, was was giving evidence at the hearing, which meant the messages between the two got an airing. It turned out that those at the top of the Scottish government were not particularly impressed by their English counterparts, led then by Boris Johnson. Here's what Nicola Sturgeon had to say after Johnson announced a second national lockdown in October 2020. On the 31st of October 2020 at 6.30pm, Prime Minister Boris Johnson began his address announcing the second national lockdown. And I want to pick up the messages between yourself and Nicola Sturgeon, which starts 10 minutes into the address. So if we read the first message on the 31st of October, at um, 6.40, you say, hitting the 15 minutes between the rugby and strictly to lock the country up. Let us never do this like this. Nicola Sturgeon replies, their comms are behind awful. We're not perfect, but we don't get nearly enough credit for how be much better than them we are. She then replies, this is excruciating. Their comms are awful. Then she goes on to say, his utter incompetence in every sense is now offending me on behalf of politicians everywhere. You reply saying, I have a separate WhatsApp with, and the name's redacted, and Davy, and we are offended on behalf of spads everywhere. Nicola Sturgeon says he is a f***ing clown. Sturgeon didn't stop there. The full transcript of that exchange reveals another damning indictment of the Tory government. After Sturgeon asks Liz Lloyd if they should shut down now to try and get as much UK government funding for affected Scottish businesses as possible, she adds, they really are a shower. Now, two meanings are possible here. For those not familiar with slang, shower is usually followed by of and a word that rhymes with hunt. Alternatively, it could be a shower of shit. Take your pick. In that same session, Liz Lloyd was further quizzed 
about the relationship between Boris Johnson and her former boss. Is it fair to say that the relationship between Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson by this date had completely broken down? Um, I think broken down to a degree overstates what was there to break. Um, They had uh, met on a number of occasions. There was always a a politeness, a a business-like approach to it. Um, When Boris Johnson first became prime minister and came to meet Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, they had a discussion that I think has been described publicly as well as it was more like a debate, you know, two intelligent people um, engaged in discussion about policy issues. When we got to COVID, I think it was much harder. Um, It was evident in his exchanges with the Scottish government, with the first minister, and I think with the other first ministers, because we would all be on the same call, um, that he didn't want to be on those calls. Um, He wasn't necessarily well briefed on those calls and he wasn't listening to the points we were making on those calls. Um, And so I think engagement with him came to be seen as... um, slightly pointless during this period. Something quite interesting about those messages is that on social media, fake messages, including a description of Nicola Sturgeon apparently calling Boris Johnson a marzipan dildo, which didn't happen, uh, went round and people really believed that that's what she said. So maybe that ex Maybe that sums up the view people have political leaders at this point. It's also worth noting that Scottish leaders don't exactly come out of this smelling of roses either. Because when I said Nicola Sturgeon handed over all her WhatsApps, that wasn't exactly accurate. She'd previously deleted all pandemic-related WhatsApp, saying that was the government advice given to her. Uh, She also claimed she didn't use that platform to make decisions during the pandemic period. But evidence set out during the inquiry suggests differently. At one point, at one point, Sturgeon and Liz Lloyd were shown discussing a decision on the numbers of people allowed at a wedding. And in another 2020 exchange, they talked about putting pressure on the UK government to expand the furlough scheme to Scotland. Liz Lloyd says this. My reason for setting a timeline for them to answer us on furlough is purely political, especially as we'd expect the answer to be no. It looks awful for them and creating that kind of pressure could possibly result in a yes, though agree we shouldn't bank on it. Think I just want a good old fashioned Rammy so I can think about other, something other than sick people. Nicola Sturgeon. Yeah, I get it. And it might be worth doing. I've sent a rough formulation of what I might say tomorrow. I could for it in there. Now, What Liz Lloyd says there could and has been interpreted in some places as a dismissal of those sick with COVID-19. I'm actually not so sure. Maybe I'm being generous, but to me, I see it kind of more as clumsy wording about also wanting to focus on policy for those who weren't sick yet, but still impacted by the lockdowns. Anyway, this is how Liz Lloyd herself explained it. I think this is an expression of frustration um, uh, that we were not able to manage the pandemic at this point in time in the way that we wanted um and i mean a good old-fashioned rami is language i would rarely use actually but you know is that we needed to have the argument in public there were a lot of things in covid where we didn't have the argument in public um there were a lot of things in covid where uh, the uk government did something and we just let it go or they didn't do something and we just let it go Lloyd also said the UK government made decisions based on England and not the other three nations that are part of the UK. This was the issue, was that finance decisions that related to mitigating public health measures were not uh, coordinated with the decisions each of the four nations might make on those public health measures. They were only 
triggered, if you like, when England took a decision and Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland all faced significant difficulties during this period for that reason. The airing out of Sturgeon and Liz Lloyd's messages actually led to an apology by current First Minister Hamza Youssef when he hit the chair in the afternoon. Youssef said this. Let me unreservedly apologise to this inquiry, but also to those who are mourning the loss of a loved one that was bereaved by COVID for the government's, frankly, poor handling of the various requests in relation to informal messages. There's no excuse for it. We should have done better. Yusuf has also announced an independent review into the use of mobile messaging apps in the Scottish government. What's interesting is that BBC analysis suggests that Scotland and England had roughly similar and horribly high death rates during the COVID-19 pandemic. But, you know, Polly, most of the headlines today have actually just focused on A, Sturgeon insulting Boris, or WhatsApp being used for government communications, which kind of, to me, smacks of Hillary, those emails. Are we kind of missing the real stories amid the pantomime? When I started in my role uh, at Navarra as Labour correspondent, a big question that I was getting asked by, you know, MPs or by other journalists was, where have all these strikes come from? You know, and I would say that there isn't so often on picket lines, you know, almost no picket line I stand on where people don't say the experience of working through COVID really radicalized me. And that can be in obvious ways, you know, that can be, um, you know, like in areas where we might expect, um, like junior doctors, um, you know, or, or medical professionals. Um, but it crops up everywhere. It crops up with, you know, refuse collectors. It crops up, you know, with nurses. It crops up with teachers, um, you know, teachers who had to fight the government because they didn't feel that it was appropriate to go back to school when the government wanted to push them to. There was so much of that anger and, and so much of the way in which COVID changed how we work um, that just wasn't captured because if you read the news, you know, you would be very, very well informed about the latest squabble, um, you know, between X. MP and YMP. Um, you know, I spent COVID working, you know, I was a key worker. Um, I was working in a in a food shop and, you know, we sold food and medicines. Um, and the experiences I had in that time are the reason I write about work because I, you know, I uh, had always worked in retail um, and I went into this job thinking it would be like no other. And the 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 experiences I went through were really shocking. Um, you know, I had customers say, I won't let you serve me unless you take that mask off. Um, you know, I served customers who would come into the very small shop where the only point of ventilation was a door, uh, you know, that opened onto the street that we had to have open, come come wind, come rain, come shine, um, who would come into the shop without a mask bump into a friend in the shop and put their mask on to talk to their friend and then take it off to be served by me. You know, I think the 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 violence of COVID and the those experiences, you know, that's what the inquiry is meant to attest to. You know, the inquiry is meant to answer the question of why did we let people experience, you know, put their put their lives in such danger? Why did people die? Because the gov, you know, why was the government not equipped to protect people so that people didn't have to go to work, um, you know, without PPE? But instead, here we are, you know, here we are again in another circus. And yes, I'll admit that Nicola Sturgeon's insults are 
quite funny. I was laughing off screen when you were reading them. But, <laughs> you know, I, I can't, I really cannot help but think um, that this is, this is all part of the same problem, you know. And, you know, if you go back to 2021, Rishi Sunak as Chancellor refused to wear a mask in the crowded House of Commons, you know. That was around the same time, you know, I imagine I was working and I had people coming into the shop and I had to say, oh, so, I'm so sorry, excuse me, could you put your mask on, you know. So I think that the, the government disdain for, for working people, for people who, you know, put their lives on the line during COVID is as then as it is now. Um, and so, yes, whilst entertaining, I think that it is a real distraction from conversations that we've not really had. You know, I think that we haven't drawn out that thread well enough to say, hold on a minute, what did being designated a key worker do to people's psyches that meant they wanted to take strike action, that meant that, you know, they might have had these conditions for, for many years, but they weren't, you know, they weren't going out, they weren't balloting. You know, what were the ways in which COVID reconstituted work? I would rather see five to 10 articles about how, you know, work changed and work was changed by COVID than the amount of lines of media copy that will be given over to this. I think that is so pertinent. And let's stay with that thread. Let's let's have the conversation about the workers because today is a very special anniversary, is it not? Can you tell us, Polly, what happened a year ago in Coventry? A year ago, I was not as warm as I am now. I was stood on a very chilly picket line um, and it was the first ever official strike action taken at an Amazon warehouse in the UK. So there had been an unofficial walkout earlier um, in, the, in the summer um, over a pay rise um, that had happened spontaneously and it had, you know, um, it spread across the country and the GMB had been trying to organise Amazon for um, a long time, but Amazon had made it incredibly difficult um, for the GMB. They had sent the GMB letters threatening that they would um, you know, go after them for trespass because the GMB organisers were um, you know, standing close to Amazon, uh, Amazon fulfillment centres, trying to talk to workers about um, you know, the union. Um, so... Yeah, fast forward from this unofficial walkout a year ago today, it was the first official strike action in Coventry. A year on, a lot has changed, but also, you know, workers have found that they haven't been able to get recognition at Coventry. And that's because of the approach that Amazon is taking, which has been one, um, you know, no surprise um, in keeping with the global approach of union busting. Um, and so today, uh, workers at uh, the Birmingham um, uh, Birmingham Fulfillment Centre were out on strike action. Um, the so you know the strike has spread. Um, you know, and uh, our workers also at Rugeley, at the Rugeley Fulfillment Centre have, have taken strike action. And in in the year in between these two, um, you know, last year and now, Amazon's seen about thirty days of, of of strike action. So it's an incredibly impressive effort. Um, and Amazon have used. A multitude of ways in which to try and undermine the union effort. Um, you know, they have plastered uh, the warehouses with some very hilarious posters, which say, you know, all sorts of things along the lines of, oh, we're not anti-union, but did you know, you know, um, something, you know, something, insert something unflattering about unions. Um, the, the main way in which Amazon have been able to uh, undermine the efforts of and, and desires of workers at the Coventry plant to unionize has been through the, the process called, um, 
has been around recognition um and so in the uk if you want to have your you want to have uh, your union recognized um you can go to your employer and ask for voluntary recognition and they'll say yes or no uh, and if they say no then you go to a body called the central arbitration committee and then uh they you the workers vote uh and whether they want a union the gmb don't necessarily know how many workers are actually in the amazon fulfillment center it's a bit of a guesswork um and the gmb have accused amazon of hiring more workers so that you know the gmb goes out and organizes 700 members and gets 700 members and is confident that that's over half uh and then suddenly surprise surprise amazon hire you know more workers so that actually that's no longer half um amazon deny this um amazon say that this is just all part of the natural hiring um but yeah the workers say that this is being used to frustrate their desires for recognition what i also want to know because thank you for giving us such a, like a comprehensive rundown of this struggle they're engaged in what impact has these amazon strikes had in wider labour organising, if any? Because surely it's pretty significant when Amazon workers are organising in this fashion. Totally. I mean, when we look at the strike wave that we had, most of the strike action we saw, um, you know, was in public sector, you know, doctors, nurses, teachers, or in where it was in the private sector, it was in formally, um, you know, formally nationalised areas, you know, um, you know, uh, like postal workers, for instance, um, there wasn't masses of strike action within the private sector. Um, and union density is much lower in the private sector. And so it's really important. Um, you know, I think lots of people will be looking to Amazon, um, you know, to see whether or not, you know, the kind of Amazon nut can be cracked um, in effect. But I think also um, another reason why Amazon kind of gets so much coverage and is so important is because. Um, they are the condition setter. You know, Amazon are so big that they are almost like a black hole that other um, employers are sort of sucked into because the, the way in which Amazon sets the pace of work becomes the condition for a sports direct warehouse down the road, you know, for a home-based warehouse. Um, and so it's important to organize Amazon workers because those workers, you know, have um, poor pay and, you know, as we all know, you know, often work in, in really terrible and dangerous conditions. But it's important because those conditions are becoming the conditions of workers outside of Amazon. Polly, I want to say a massive thank you for joining me tonight. I, I just think your contributions have been so rich and useful and really helped me see issues in a much wider breadth than I did before. Thank you for having me on, Moya. It's been an absolute delight to spend my evening uh, discussing these things with you. And thank you for your for your fantastic questions. <laughs> well, I hope you have enjoyed it because I will be wrangling you back maybe every week. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in despite our little technical differences. Di differences? Difficulties. This show will be back tomorrow. That is a threat. Uh, we will be covering the ICJ aftermath, of course. Um, and for now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.